I hope you're a copper fan because copper is on the agenda this week at the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome once again. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Just looking at CNBC here, we have a copper price of $4.52. Uh, not sure if that's a breakout, but it sure looks like it, which would be extremely interesting. Now, if we contrast that with the U.S. 10-year bond at 1.254% yield, the yield is slightly higher than last week when it's at 1.19. So that the higher this goes, the higher, you might say, inflation expectations are, or that's one of many ways of reading these tea leaves, as we like to call them, and they're called the 10-year bond, the oracle, as we were saying. But copper kind of showing a little bit of action, uh, while gold, you know, back below $1,800 at $1,795. Silver, a lackadaisical $25.14. Platinum, you know, a little over $1,000. Palladium, $2,600. So let's take a quick look at oil, $72. So again, a couple of weeks ago, it was at 77 then it pulled back to 65 Now we're at 72 Feels like the summer doldrums a little bit, doesn't it? You know, Bitcoin yesterday, very impressive rally. As I was saying to my friend, who's also in crypto, it was like a good dose of the animal spirits from the spring. Uh, at the same time, it seemed like everybody was getting ahead of themselves. And sure enough, the markets have pulled back. So we'll see what happens there. I mean, what troubles me about that market, the crypto markets, is how dependent they seem to be on news. Like, and I guess you could say that's true for everything. But as much as I'm a fan of crypto and what it, you know, to me, it's kind of democratization of finance in a lot of ways. And we can get into what I mean by that. But I'm totally troubled by, you know, if Elon Musk is on TV and says something positive about Bitcoin, it can go up 7% or down. Like, to me, that's not a vote of confidence in the asset class. Now, there are some people who would say this is coincidental stuff, and I sure hope so, because to me, that's a sign of, uh, that's not a good sign. I remain committed, though, and, you know, Speaking on crypto slightly, I mean, it's to me, it's one of the biggest news stories of the year, and there's actually been no news stories on it. But it happened in crypto. One of the top influencers, so to speak, uh, Alex Sanders from Nuggets News, there's been all these allegations that he's been and screenshots of messages that look authentic, that look like he was trying to that he was, in fact, borrowing Bitcoin from other YouTube influencers and some with success and some without and not paying them back and that he was raising money for a project which nobody knows if it exists or not. He, Anyways, he's gone into hiding. Apparently, he owes millions of dollars. This is all alleged. Um, but what's so significant about it is the guy always sort of presented himself as a family kind of man, and I'm sure doesn't mean he's not. And he was arguably one of the top authorities, if not like like top three, you know, at least on the YouTube circuit. You know, I'm sure there are more technical people, but just in terms of financial analysis, you know, uh, as we might look at like a Stan Druckenmiller in traditional markets or whomever, you know, Jim Bianco, all these people, 
this was kind of like uh the that guy of the crypto space. He ran Nuggets News, had was a real prominent voice. So it's shocking that someone with that prominence would seemingly have a pretty sketchy side hustle. And again, that doesn't do the crypto markets any favors, does it? I mean, it really shows how nascent that whole market is and how kind of, I don't want to say it's fragile because you know what? A market that can dump 85% and live to tell the tale without really anything breaking, that's not a fragile market, at least not from a technological perspective. From a narrative perspective, it does get to be a little more troubling. I mean, we're seeing Tether, uh, USDT, which is a stable coin of the US dollar, which has been highly controversial for years now. They are under new investigations, supposedly. And again, these are all allegations and nobody knows for sure. A news story is kind of coming up. So a lot of uncertainty, like something like Tether, you wonder how it was legal to begin with? What if I was to create my own little techno coin that represents the Canadian dollar and or the euro or the US dollar, and I'm going to start selling it to people, give it to them, and they give me dollars? And I would think, am I allowed to do this? Now, to wrap this all up, I'm glad that people are allowed to do this because the opposite of that is what we're seeing going on in China where the government is clamping down on business and enterprise and companies when it's doing stuff that it deems inappropriate. And we're actually seeing a little bit of U.S. investment actually come out. We saw Kathy Wood, I saw a Bloomberg piece on how she has reduced her holdings in Chinese tech companies because of what I guess we could call it governmental risk. So that's the opposite. So I think it's awesome in the West, that we keep this bias towards a more lackadaisical, open, free approach. In a sense, let's let people, in a sense, break things a little bit before we start clamping down. Um, it does tell me also, though, that the crypto space, especially when you look at this Alex Sanders situation, you know, this is all allegations. So we don't know if any of this is true. Maybe that's why there hasn't been too many news stories on it. But the word on Twitter was the allegations are that he was taking people's money for a pre-sale for a project and then sending that, you know, Ethereum or whatever it was, USDT, USDC, whatever it was, over to FTX, a major exchange trading platform, to, to trade, right? So imagine someone doing that with like an IPO where you collect the you know, the transfer from someone and you you take that transfer and you put it in your stock account and you lever it up and start trading. Now, we don't know if any of that's true, but those are the allegations. A lot of drama under the surface there. And you kind of see, like to me, a lot of the kind of cracks and fissures of the crypto markets has come out. Uh, so that's the landscape that I see you know, again, I feel like people are on vacation a little bit as well. U.S. markets look a little toppy, you know, but with all the stimulus, you just really can't, you know, you can't short this market. You can't, you don't want to bet against this market. So, so there we have it. 
a strange, unbelievable world that remains status quo. <laughs> so anyway, we have an awesome show lineup for you today. We have the Freeport-McMoran conference call. So last week was Alcoa. Now we turn over to Freeport and their CEO, Richard Adkerson, and he delivered a very, very interesting conference call, particularly at the end, uh, where he's talking about how they're developing new technological processes for leaching, new leaching technology that uses AI and data science to basically extract more copper from stockpiles that they have. And he's actually calling it like a, it's like having another mine. So definitely something to listen to if you're running a mine, because if people are doing that, you kind of want to know about what they're doing. Because he's saying at, at very, very low cost. It's like having a new mine at, at incredibly low cost. So that comes up. Hear about the copper markets, hear how Freeport, Bellwether in the copper industry, see how they're doing. And as they say, Dr. Copper, right? Uh, so Dr. Copper is at 452 on CNBC here, $4.52 per pound. So Dr. Copper is saying, now, I was going to say Dr. Copper is saying inflation, but we don't actually know that. It should, could just be a supply and demand issue because gold isn't saying inflation. Oil is just kind of hanging in there. Uh, the rest of the commodities seem to be just kind of holding steady. So these are the variables, the qualitative data that we have to analyze and make judgments of. And hopefully this conference call from Freeport will help you understand what's going on out there. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and more. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have another story. Let's put it in the resource nationalism camp Deep South Resources is taking Namibia's mining minister to court over license refusal. And this is a play we've seen before, which is you withhold the license. And I mean, don't we just see that with the Dipio mine in the Philippines? And they just got that license back two years later. Well, here we are. Cecilia Jamazmi, Canada's Deep South Resources, is taking the Namibian Ministry of Mines and Energy to court as it refused in June to renew the company's prospecting license for its Haib copper project. The Vancouver-based miner had warned it would contest the decision, quote, by all means necessary. You know, it's a little confrontational. Like, I mean, uh, by all means necessary. I'm not sure if that's great negotiation. Maybe it is. Who knows? Uh, so they are going by all means necessary, and quote, as it said, it had clearly demonstrated that it had met all criteria to justify a renewal. The application, which also targets the Mining Commissioner and Orange River Exploration and Mining, seeks an urgent interdict uh, to prevent the government from granting exploration or mining rights over the same license area to another company. Orange River is named in the suit as a possible interested party in the matter since it applied for an exclusive prospecting license extending over the Haib copper deposit 
on November 12th last year. From April 2017 to April 2021, Deep South invested more than $2 million Canadian on the project, including an updated preliminary economic assessment. The miner has also proposed a $7.1 million feasibility study and $25.5 million pilot plant. Since receiving news of the license refusal, Deep South has halted all work on the project and laid off its employees on site. The company had acquired the remainder of the project in 2017 from Tech Resources, which is one of its major shareholders. We don't hear about Namibia very much, so a very interesting little situation. Uh, I'm sure we are just scratching the surface here. So just one to take note of, uh, license refusal in Namibia. Along the same lines, we also have a U.S. bankruptcy court holds Kurge's government in contempt over Kumtor seizure, and this is by Henry Lazenby. So, of course, we have Sentara Gold's Kumtor mine in Kurge's Republic. The U.S. bankruptcy court for the Southern District of New York has ruled the Kurge's government is in contempt of court for continuing its legal actions locally against Canada's Sentara Gold subsidiary, Kumtor Gold Company. Now, as someone who is a layperson in these kind of legal matters, I do not understand why a U.S. bankruptcy court is involved in a dispute between Canada's Centera Gold and the Kurdish government. But I'm sure that's like how it's supposed to go. It's just surprising. What, what does the Southern District of New York have to do with any of this? I'm sh but it's probably all uh, how it's supposed to be. The Kyrgyz government has revived a slew of previously settled alleged tax and environmental complaints at the Kumtur gold mine before the seizure of the mine. The country's largest industrial concern in mid-May. Uh, in the order handed down late on July 20th, Judge Lisa Beckerman held that the Kyrgyz government was in contempt of court for violating U.S. bankruptcy rules when it took legal action against KGC, which is the Kumtar Gold Company, in the Kyrgyz Republic earlier this month. Quote, I am ruling that there is a violation of the automatic stay by the Kyrgyz Republic. End quote. She said in a 115-page transcript of KGC's emergency motion to enforce the automatic stay of prosecution globally, previously afforded to the company by the same court. In her ruling, Beckerman noted that, quote, the proceedings that are going before the courts in the Kyrgyz Republic do appear to have an impact on the automatic stay that's in place here and do appear to be violative of it in numerous respects. She continues to say the injunction in the Kyrgyz court, quote, infringes, end quote, on the Kumtur Gold Company's rights to take specific actions during this Chapter 11 proceeding. Sounds very in the weeds. And frankly, if I was the Kyrgyz government and some New York judge is trying to get into business between me and some Canadian miner, I would say, what do you have to do with any of this? I mean, again, maybe I'm the one that totally doesn't understand the due process of situations like this. So there it is, though. A U.S. bankruptcy court weighs in on the dispute between Sentara and Kumtor, and, and the U.S. bankruptcy court doesn't like what it sees from the Kyrgyz government. Moving on. Uh, BHP and their Jansen Potash mine in Saskatchewan, they have signed a conditional port deal to move product from Jansen. This is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says here that BHP, the world's largest miner, 
has signed a conditional agreement with a unit of West Shore Terminals Investment for its Janssen Potash project in Canada. The deal, West Shore said, is subject to approval by BHP's board and dependent on whether BHP moves ahead with the first phase of its long-delayed potash project in Saskatchewan. Vancouver-based West Shore has agreed to build the necessary infrastructure to handle potash at West Shore's Roberts Bank Terminal by 2026, with BHP funding the construction. The deal would become binding on BHP if it announces a final decision to proceed with Janssen's first stage, West Shore said. So if we build this thing, we're going to build a port. If we proceed with Janssen, we will need that port and we will help you pay for it. So that is the latest on the Janssen mine in Saskatchewan. We have another story, this time by Valentina Ruiz-Leotode. Coal mining byproduct effective for land reclamation, study says. A researcher at the University of Alberta in Canada has discovered that nanohumus, a substance extracted from coal mine deposits and then crushed to a black powdery material, is highly effective at helping reclaim the land and water used in mining. Well, isn't life in the universe just full of irony? A byproduct of a coal mine is good at reclaiming land and water used in mining. According to Yihan Zhao, nanohumus has, quote, outstanding physical and chemical properties, end quote, that remove heavy metals from contaminated water and soil. The material is made up of natural organic compounds, and it works like a sponge that attaches and holds heavy metals. In the study, which was part of her PhD in land reclamation and remediation, Zhao tested wastewater containing cadmium, one of the heavy metals most commonly produced by mining, and found that at a high concentration, about 90% of the toxic heavy metal was removed. After just 15 minutes, after 24 hours, 93% was removed. In Zhao's view, her findings offer the potential option for a low-cost, more efficient way to remediate industrial wastewater and soil affected by resource extraction and manufacturing processes. This is of particular relevance in developing countries, she said. She also noted that conventional remediation treatments for heavy metals use large amounts of chemicals, which in turn can produce further contaminants that require treatment. Some remediation methods also require large amounts of electricity or can take days or months to complete. However, nanohumus and similar compounds can be used not only for quicker remediation of contaminants, but can also contribute to soil building by partially or completely replacing the bulkier materials of manure and straw typically used to amend soil. And for anyone that's listening, in a media statement, the researcher said she would like to partner with Canadian Industries in mining reclamation to field test the nano humus. So if that interests you, I would go to this story on the northernminer.com, coal mining byproduct effective for land reclamation, and look up Yihan Zhao. Uh, she sounds like she's open to partner up with people, and you might want to be first in line. So available exclusively on the northernminer.com. And finally, we have a story on La Mancha Holdings, which is owned by Egyptian billionaire Naguib Sawiris. And La Mancha Holdings has unveiled a $1.4 billion fund to hold the magnets, gold mining investments, and pursue new opportunities in the sector. So this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. And so it sounds like Egyptian billionaire Naguib Sawiris is getting excited about gold 
And I think for good reason, you know, with everything high, gold is looking cheap. And with everything just so paper dominated today, and everybody's rich on paper, I think it's pretty wise on his part. The vehicle named La Mancha Fund SCSP is open to new investors and will also invest in battery metals needed for electric vehicles, the Luxembourg-based private firm said. So you can read more about that on thenorthernminer.com. An Egyptian billionaire has launched a $1.4 billion gold mining fund. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets who provide us with these prices each and every week. And on July 27th, according to actually this is CNBC, the 10-year bond is 1.254%. And that is 0.06% higher in yield from last week, just to set the context here. If we look at gold, is trading at $1,796.89 per ounce. That is $20 lower than last week. Silver is $0.03 cents lower at $25.15 per ounce. Platinum is also lowered at $1,057.11 per ounce. That is $25 lower than last week. Palladium is $38 higher at $2,648.18 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper, and this is a different close that they use. I think it was from yesterday. I don't think it updates. Uh, so it's a little different from our 452 that we saw at the top of the show. Copper's at $4.28 per pound. That is two cents higher than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at $1.13 per pound. Lead is $0.04 cents higher at $1.10 per pound. Nickel is $0.17 cents higher at $8.74 per pound. Tin is at $15.92 per pound. That is the highest we have recorded here in our two years recording these prices. Cobalt is at $23.80 per pound. That is a penny lower than last week. And zinc is a penny lower at $1.34 per pound. So metal prices remain elevated. Nickel and tin and our copper price is a little, uh, might be from yesterday because today's copper price is quite a bit higher. It looks like our industrial metals... It looks like they're getting ready for another move, doesn't it? Like, it looks like a slight breakout. And so, you know, as we were saying last show, like, if we go into some sort of recession, and nobody's saying that's going to happen, but if the reflation, the reopening trade, if it does slow down and we start getting higher industrial metal prices, it seems to set the stage for a stagflation, doesn't it? I believe a stagflation is low growth, high inflation. We are not there yet. But the stage is being set. Other than that, you know, again, gold and silver down, palladium higher. Again, an industrial precious metal higher. So you see the winds gathering up a little bit on the industrial metals. And those are your metal prices. 
And coming up, we have Freeport McMoran's Q2 conference call featuring CEO Richard Adkerson. And Mr. Adkerson gives a very interesting discussion on Freeport and the dynamics of the copper market, including increased shipping costs and also the benefits of a strong copper price, how they now have a copper mark, which measures sustainability, and this was created by the International Copper Association. He also talks about incremental demand out of China in emerging markets and says how copper is critical to achieving the low-carbon goals of the global economy. And probably my favorite part was where he was discussing how they're using AI and data analytics to create a next-level leaching technology and how he's very pumped about this and how it's almost like having an extra mine at very low cost on the side, just using their old stockpiles. So I hope you enjoy this and I will see you on the other side. Thanks everybody for joining us. We are really pleased to uh, report in what's now becoming a string of really strong operating performances for our company. And with this great positive outlook for our business, we're all really enthusiastic about it. Hoping all of you are staying healthy through this pandemic. Vaccinations are giving us an opportunity to protect ourselves and those around us. We're working hard to encourage our people globally to take full advantage of this opportunity whenever possible. Our teams are working safely. We remain vigilant with our COVID protocols that have been so effective. With the recent rise in cases globally, we are refocusing, redoubling our efforts, uh, restoring some protocols that we had loosened to keep our team and community safe. Our results in the second quarter demonstrate really strong execution of our plans, uh, really strong and favorable pricing for our products. Kathleen mentioned the shipping issue, uh, logistics is an issue globally. If we've been able to, we, we, we basically met or slightly exceeded our production targets. We've been able to ship everything we produce. We would uh, have beat our sales targets. We also, common mining industry had some one-off type issues affecting production. Without those and with shipping, we would have had a, a, a real strong beat on our previous guidance. Really important, our Grassberg underground ramp up is proceeding on schedule. This is a remarkable and I would say a historic success for both our company and even the mining industry. Our team in Indonesia is doing remarkable and outstanding work and this is building value for our shareholders and long-term sustainable low-cost values for the future. Production, we're making money in the Americas Copper prices, production in the U.S. is increasing. Our Lone Star project in eastern Arizona is really exciting. We have a series of ongoing value-enhancing opportunities in the U.S. in front of us, and I'm personally really encouraged about future growth in the U.S. In South America, our teams in Peru and Chile are navigating the pandemic effectively. We're restoring production that we had curtailed a year ago. We have achieved these outstanding financial results, 
made possible by the hard work and investments we've been making for many years. We're now generating significant cash flows, which will be sustainable for years in the future. This quarter alone, we had $2 billion in cash flow after capital spending. Uh, that's just remarkable, considering where we were just a year ago. Kathleen mentioned, and it's notable, that we reached our debt target several months earlier than our forecast earlier this year. We uh, ended the quarter with $3.4 billion of net debt. And that's within the targeted range we set of 3 to $4 billion. Uh, you know, we, we reduced our debt by like 60% over the past year. We're now positioned in accordance with the financial policy that our board adopted earlier this year and that we disclosed to the market to shift our capital allocation priorities by increasing cash returns to shareholders as we make disciplined investments for future growth of our business. This policy will allow us to maintain a strong balance sheet with high-grade credit metrics while providing cash for increasing shareholder returns and investing in our company's long-term future. We're devoting significant attention and resources to sustainability initiatives. And this has always been key to our company and a tradition of our company. We are committed to the sustainability principles of ICMM. We're also moving to certify all of our operations with the Copper Mark, a relatively new industry framework developed by the International Copper Association to ensure responsible production consistent with UN sustainability development goals. Today, we lead the industry with six of our operations now certified. In the second quarter, we submitted five additional operating sites to this initiative, and we've committed to validate all of our sites to this robust framework. Responsible production is critical in building and maintaining trust which we've earned over the years through long-standing partnerships with communities as we delivered a product, copper, valued by society, produced in a safe, environmentally sound, innovative manner. A majority of copper goes into generating and transmitting electricity, and copper is critical in every aspect of achieving low-carbon goals for the global economy. This ranges from electric vehicles and supported infrastructure to clean energy from wind and solar. Copper is just simply essential to a green economy. This transition is now just beginning to unfold. It will add significantly to future demand for copper. And as the global leading copper producer, Freeport is solidly positioned to benefit from this higher future demand. In addition, now companies around the world are responding to COVID with aggressive fiscal and monetary policies. This alone is creating important near-term copper demand beyond China. And China's consumption remains strong. There are some mixed economic signals, but even with that, demand for copper in China is strong, and now it's uh, higher consumption is being generated from economic recovery in developed countries around the world, and that's even in the face of an important sector of copper demand, automobiles, which is being constrained by this chip problem. So this increasingly important incremental demand outside China, the long-term growth from global, uh, from growth in emerging markets, 
just is very positive for our outlook. Copper demand is also expanding from technology advances in communications, artificial intelligence applications, expanding connectivity through global infrastructure initiatives, and efforts to improve health through using copper to fight viruses and other infections. The global challenges in maintaining much less growing supply makes the outlook for copper compelling. I would say compelling is an understated word, you know, really, really positive and enthusiastic about it. This recent pullback in copper pricing that we've seen has not altered in any way our conviction of the favorable long-term outlook for copper. This is a decision we made years ago which underscores our strategy at Freeport to focus on copper because of its favorable fundamentals, the nature of our assets, and our team. There are always actions that influence sentiment and short-term pricing at any point in time. But beyond that, indisputable facts support a positive fundamental outlook for copper. Demand growth is inevitable. Maintaining supply or growing supply is challenged. Our prices will be required to support major new investments in copper. Rising demand, scarcity of supplies point to large impending structural deficit supporting much higher future copper prices. Our company has high quality assets, industry leading experience, highly motivated team will allow us to benefit from these fundamentals. Portfolio of assets in the copper business is rare if not unique in our industry. It would be difficult if not impossible to replicate these assets. With strong growing production, embedded brownfield, low risk growth from our large portfolio of undeveloped resources, our assets are extremely valuable in today's world and will become more valuable as these market develops, market deficits emerge in the future. We've had meaningful volume growth in recent quarters that you've all seen. This growth will continue. For the year 2021, copper volumes are projected to increase 20%, gold volumes 55% over 2020. Then looking forward to 2022, we'll see a further growth of, of 15 to 20% over 2021 levels. The capital and execution risk to achieve these higher volumes are largely behind us. Higher volumes will, uh, with low incremental costs, will yield expanded margins at prices ranging from four to five dollars per pound for copper. We would generate annual EBITDA for 22 and 23. Of 12 billion to 17 billion dollars of copper with capital expenditures in the range of two and a half billion dollars a year. Looking back, there was always an overhang for report related to uh, execution risk with this underground development, political risk in Indonesia, debt levels. You look back over the past three years, we have met and mitigated all these major risks that were overhanging our company. And it's been a really exciting, gratifying time for our company. I just met with Mark Johnson and his team in Indonesia and really congratulated him on the fabulous work they're doing, even in the face of COVID. In the second quarter, we achieved just under 80% of our target annualized run rates for metal sales. We're on track to reach full rates of metal production by the end of the year. 
and our team in Indonesia has just done a fabulous job in the face of dealing with pandemic in a challenging physical environment. We executed well-designed operating protocols. We're dealing with this new upturn in cases in Indonesia in recent weeks. We're helping to support the government in our local community. We've implemented travel, other restrictions to mitigate the spread. We're encouraged by the increasing availability of vaccines at our job site, in general in Indonesia. A number of our workers, a significant number, have already seen vaccines and received vaccines. We have a goal providing vaccines to all of our workforce in the second half of the year, and we're supporting nearby communities in their efforts to respond to COVID. We have a real strong support from the government of Indonesia, a real positive partnership with PTFI stay-at-home shareholders, shareholder mind, IV. We're all working together in our lines. I've been working in Papua for 30 years, and I'm personally proud and gratified by our team's accomplishments since we began investing in the underground over 20 years ago. The transition from the overfit that began 18 months ago and dealing with COVID is just remarkable what we've been able to do. Planning and investing in this transition began in the 1990s. Now, experiencing this success is special for all of us at Freeport. We now look forward to continuing long-term success at Grassburg by building values in this world-class historic mining district with low-cost, high-volume, and sustainable production. It shows the multiple options for ground-fill, low-risk growth across our global portfolio, increasingly encouraged by the opportunities in the U.S., where we have favorable community support across the board with where we operate, favorable tax situation, and a long history of, of, of working in a responsible way. We're expanding our mine production at Lone Star, Baghdad, other sites, and we have exciting new opportunities from technology involving leach recovery from our historical operations. The Lone Star Mine, our newest operation, situated adjacent to our long-standing operations in southeast Arizona. There we have strong community support, and this new mine is performing above design capacity. We're evaluating expansions of Lone Star's oxide ores. We're actually making a lot of money in what normally would be stripping operations. We're conducting long-range planning for the development of a potentially world-class sulfide resource that lies beneath this oxide cover in our historical mining area. We have an opportunity and a strong likelihood of moving forward with constructing a new concentrator to double production in our Baghdad mine in northwest Arizona. We expect to commence this project next year. Emerging leaching technology, which I am pumped about, provides substantial opportunities for added growth across our portfolio of global resources. We're evaluating an attractive expansion opportunity at our El Abra mine in Chile, where we're partners with Fidelco. This project would require significant capital investment along lead time, but it's attractive, large. Major future expansion in Val Opera is likely, but not now. We're deferring investment decision on this project 
until we have more clarity about the mining policy issues currently under consideration by the government in Chile. We're also evaluating development of an underground deposit called Kuchingly Air in the Grassberg District operated by PTFI. This copper gold resource involves a large block cave mine using the substantial infrastructure that we already have in place. We have expertise, long track record. Mark Johnson and his team has come up with revised development plans that make the project less capital intensive, economics better. It's a large operation. It'd be a block cave with about 90,000 tons per day, so that's real big. Six million tons, tons of copper resource, six million ounces of gold, and it fits right in with our plan. We have additional opportunities to invest in projects to support our carbon reduction, other sustainability goals, including investing to develop clean, renewable energy for our operations and communities. We're advancing plans for an exciting ESG-type project to recover metals from the recycle of electronic devices at our Atlantic copper processing facilities in Spain. Bottom line, we're going to be disciplined in devoting capital to new investments. We're going to be focused on value-added projects supported by long-life reserves. We have a long track record of success in developing projects. We have established license to operate and positive relationship and support from communities where we have the opportunities to invest. In fact, the Lone Star shows we're meeting exceeding expectations. Original plan was 75,000 tons a day, 200 million pounds of copper. We've now exceeded this, increasing the targeted rate to 95,000 tons a day. On a sustained basis, we have tank house capacity to do this to yield 285 million pounds of copper, looking at a further increment that would involve a relatively small investment in tank houses, mining equipment to produce 300 or more pounds of copper, 50% more than our original design. The prize here, though, is longer term. We have a major opportunity for Lone Star to become a cornerstone asset for our company. Potential resource is 10 times more than our current reserve. As we mine these oxide ores, we're gaining access to this underlying potentially massive sulfide resource. Long-term keystone asset for our company. This reference I made earlier through leaching technology gaining additional copper from material that's already mined. We're progressing this. We have lots of opportunities to apply. It's an exciting, potentially high-value opportunity with low incremental cost and low carbon footprint. We're engaged in multiple studies using a range of different technologies, internally and externally, to capture this value from existing stockpiles. Our estimate now is for 38 billion pounds of copper in these stockpiles. This is material that's already been mined. And if we can recover just 10 to 20% of this material, it would be like having a major new mine with very low capital and operating costs. A significant portion of this is at our flagship Marinci mine, the largest mine in North America, where we are now applying artificial intelligence, data analytics, to help us understand what's going on with these leaching performance opportunities. Our team historically was instrumental 
in locking, uh, unlocking substantial values years ago with the then new SXEW technology, we're now focused on taking this leaching technology to the next level by using modern approaches to it. We've established a cross-functional team of technical experts, metallurgists, mine planners, data scientists, geologists, business analysts, all working together to take full advantage of this really exciting opportunity. We have strong operating franchises in the U.S., South America, and Indonesia, gained the trust and respect of our partners, our customers, suppliers, financial markets, and more importantly, the workers, communities, and host governments where we operate. We have significant large-scale project development, operating expertise. Team Free Ford has all the capabilities to undertake new projects in a responsible, efficient manner. I want to close by recognizing the people of Freeport. All around the globe, their commitment, dedication, resilience, positive outlook, cooperative spirit is just gratifying. Our team is passionate about the role we're going to play in achieving a better and more sustainable future for everyone. Team Freeport has the capabilities and drive to continue to meet, exceed our own high level of expectations and those of our stakeholders. We're living in a, a time of great challenge and exceptional opportunity for our business. It's so cool to go through each of these heavyweight mining companies, peek in on their conference calls and see exactly what's going on there. You know, you could have the news articles about this, but there's nothing like getting the direct word on the street from the CEOs of Alcoa, Freeport, major gold companies, and more. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a pleasure to give it to you as always. I hope you're enjoying your summer. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.